I'm going to begin today with um, graphic and slightly disturbing material, just so you know. And as soon as I say that, most of the men are like, all right. Most of the women are like, ugh. Um, but does anybody know what this is? What is that? Cat and nine tails. Yeah, it's a, it's a vicious type of whip, otherwise known as a scourge. Uh, by the way, do you know uh, the Latin roots for the word scourge? Um, comes from excoriere, which means to flay, and it's built off two Latin parts, ex. Anytime you see ex as a prefix, that means off. And uh, corium means skin. So to scourge literally means to take the skin off of someone with a ruthless whipping. The other word for this practice is a flogging. And the Romans were really good at it. This is taken from Wikipedia. In the Roman Empire, flagellation was often used as a prelude to crucifixion. As we know, for Jesus, he was flogged before he was crucified. And in this context, is sometimes referred to as a scourging. Whips with small pieces of metal or bone at the tips were commonly used. So imagine at the end of each one of those nine uh, whip ends is something sharp. Such a device could easily cause disfigurement and serious trauma, such as ripping pieces of flesh from the body or loss of an eye. In addition to causing severe pain, the victim would approach a state of hypovolemic shock due to loss of blood. The Romans reserved this treatment for non-citizens dating from 195 BC. Typically, the one to be punished was stripped naked and bound to a low pillar so that he could be bent over, or chained to an upright pillar so as to be stretched out. Two lictors, they had words for the people who conducted this wickedness, two lictors, um, and some reports indicate scourgings with four or six lictors, alternated blows on either side of the body from the bare shoulders down, to the, bo down the body to the soles of the feet. There was no limit to the number of blows inflicted. This was left to the lictors to decide, though they were normally not supposed to kill the victim. Nonetheless, ancient historians such as Josephus report cases of flagellation where victims died while still bound to the post. Flagellation was referred to as half-death by some authors, as many victims died shortly thereafter. Jewish law limited flagellation to 40 strokes, 40 less one, and in practice delivered 39 so as to avoid any possibility of breaking the law due to a miscount, which is very thoughtful of them, isn't it? There are few practices more horrifyingly painful than flagellation. And no, I didn't say flatulation, although that can be a horrifying form of torture as well. Just want to clarify. Not flagellation. Flagellation. To be flogged is to be brought as close to death as possible without actually dying. Obviously, some floggings were more severe than others. But to be severely beaten with a cane or a stick or a whip of any kind communicates a clear message that you are paying for your crimes with your own flesh and your own blood. In last week's passage in Acts, the disciples were unjustly imprisoned for performing Christ-like miracles and for proclaiming his name. However, they were delivered from prison by an angel who commanded them to keep up the good work right there in the temple courts, which they did, much to the frustration and jealousy of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. When called into account for their disobedience, they restated their goals, that they will never obey men insofar as obedience to men means disobedience to God. At this, the council flies into a rage, until the wisdom of the most prolific teacher of their time, Gamaliel, calms them with reason. And what was Gamaliel's, adv Gamaliel's advice? Well, this is from Acts 5, 38 and 39. He says, If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. 
But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel inadvertently validates the work of the Holy Spirit, who has provided strength and peace and hope to countless sufferers in the name of Jesus over the last millennia. And they aren't going anywhere, by the way, these followers of Jesus. They're not going anywhere. We, the church, will always prevail because the church is from God. No council and no king and no worldly strength of any kind can conquer the bride of Christ. But that doesn't mean they won't try. In fact, immediately after hearing the wisdom of Gamaliel and agreeing to it, begrudgingly, you can imagine, fine, we won't crucify them or stone them, fine. But immediately after hearing the wisdom of Gamaliel, the Sanhedrin goes about testing that good wisdom. They put the disciples under a stress test, if you will. Rather than stone them or hand them over to the Romans for more executions, the council has them instead flogged and released. And that sounds like a positive, right? Well, sure it is compared to crucifixion. But remember what we've already learned about flogging? It ain't no sunny picnic on a warm summer's day. The Sanhedrin is heat. Bless you. Zunheit. The Sanhedrin is heeding Gamaliel's advice, but at the same time, testing his advice. See, a sound flogging and a stern warning will force the issue. Will these apostles cave under their pain and admit to their heresy? With each cruel blow and peeled piece of skin, will they come closer to copying to the fact that they're making it all up? That they, like their corrupted rabbi, were merely empowered by Satan? That they will, in fact, obey the will of the council and cease all teachings about this rabble-rousing rabbi, that troublemaking teacher, that makeshift Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth? Or, alternately, will their endurance become a testament to the higher will that they are called to obey? Will their faithfulness in the face of flagellation speak as loudly as their miracles, declaring the truth about their crucified Lord and Master? Will their suffering become their sermon? As persecution in Jesus' name escalates at the hands of the Jewish leaders, what will the response of the believers be? And for us, what role can suffering play in our own faith? Our passage is only three verses long, so let's read it today. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. Does this sound like a body too beaten to move forward to you? That's the intention of a flogging, to beat them into submission. But this body, the body of Christ, is too strong for that. In fact, reading verse 41, it's easy to see why the Romans and the Jews of ancient Palestine thought the Christians were some sort of masochistic cult. Every time they threw a bunch of Christians on a fire and burned them alive, they died praising their Jesus. Every time they threw a Christian family in with the lions, they held each other and sang songs of praise to Jesus as they were being consumed by the beasts. Every time they were lowered onto spikes or pierced with arrows or boiled alive in brass pots or dismembered by the swords, they faced these grisly fates with thankfulness to their Lord Jesus. Thankfulness and worship, even joy. That must have been confounding to our old friends, the Romans. Did these Christians enjoy torture? 
Did they desire execution? Did they find pleasure in martyrdom? Or was something else going on here? To me, Acts 5.41 is one of the most astounding verses in the New Testament. They left the Sanhedrin with the filthy rags of beggars, which is basically what they were. They didn't have anything, any possessions of their own. And they left the Sanhedrin with the filthy rags uh, that were their only clothes, soaked through with their own blood, and clinging to the raw meat of their backs, flesh torn, body broken, blood running, and smiles beaming. They left the Sanhedrin with great joy. See, our culture has it all backwards. I have it all backwards. I live my life in a desperate attempt to flee from any and all pain. The slightest injustice leaves me pouty and sullen, as Angie can attest to. Simple disagreements are the highest form of oppression I ever feel. Just somebody disagreeing with me. I feel oppressed. And when I do experience any kind of disgrace because of who I believe in, my dominant response certainly isn't joy. More like anger. More like the author of Psalm 149 that we read this morning. Give me a sword. Time to execute some righteous vengeance. Anytime I suffer a little bit, I I want someone to pay. I'll have joy when I finally get justice. That's, hence me, my dominant first response. In a society that treats even something as common as aging, like some enemy to be combated, what hope do we have to properly understand pain? or persecution, or death. Well, what hope do we have? The exact same kind of hope that these battered apostles had. They remembered the words of their powerful Savior Jesus when he taught them these things. These are verses from Luke 12. Dear friends, don't be afraid to those who want to kill your body, like the Sanhedrin. They cannot do any more to you than that. But I'll tell you who who to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Fear God, not people. People, they can only kill your body. God can, can destroy your soul. But here's the thing about this God. What is the price of five sparrows? What, two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. So don't be afraid of people who want to persecute you, oppress you, judge you, hurt you, harm you in any way. They can only do that to your bodies. It's God who can utterly destroy you. But the same God who can destroy you will choose not to if you come to him because he loves you. He values even the little sparrows. How much more does he love you? It's not hard to count the hairs on some of our heads, right, Dale? But he knows all of them. He counts them all. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. So when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to, how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Which we're looking at the story of James Lowen and, and his, friend, his friends who are enduring suffering. That's exactly what happened to Nellie. In her time of trial, the Holy Spirit gave her exactly the words to say. So the apostles, they remember all of these words. And they're seeing it happen in real time. Or these words, they're very similar. Those first words happen in the um, sort of the middle of Jesus' ministry. These words come at the end. This is Luke 21. But before all of this occurs, and, and here he's talking about sort of desolation and judgment and, and awful things to happen to Jerusalem. But before all this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. 
but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. In both of these passages, what's the message again and again? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. I'll give you the words you need to say. I will strengthen you. Don't be afraid. Or this is the last slide. How about these words of Jesus from, from Luke 6? What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek as well. This is the great calling of those who follow Jesus. This is what marks us and separates us from the rest of the world. This is what makes us special and unique. That people will hate us, and you can expect it because they hated Jesus. So it should come as no surprise whatsoever when they hate us. Why they hate Jesus and why they hate us is more confusing. But it should come as no surprise when you suffer and are mocked and are dishonored, treated with dishonor, because of who you believe in. That, that's not a surprise. Jesus, he had anticipated suffering. He had promised it. He said, you can expect this. Look forward to it. And in fact, he just went ahead and modeled it for them. He said, not only are you going to endure this, I'm going to endure it. Remember what Peter said to that? No way. That can never happen. And Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan. This has to happen. If your faith is any kind of genuine, then you will experience trials and suffering and, and be delivered from them because of your trust. Silence in the face of accusations, except to bring glory to God. That's how Jesus treated persecution. Obedience in the face of painful trials. Forgiveness in the face of ignorance and hatred. Glory and power and joy in the face of suffering. If the only perfect man can submit to such reckless cruelty, why can't his followers? It, it makes sense, even as it doesn't make any sense at all. So don't be surprised when these bad things happen to you. And in fact, Jesus says, he promises they will happen. And when they do happen, what's our response to be? Jesus says, be happy. Leap with joy. The last time we saw someone leap for joy in Acts was the crippled beggar who is finally healed. And he prances around the temple causing a ruckus. And people hate it because he needs to know his place. Well, his place is exactly where he is, celebrating in the temple because he's redeemed, he's freed, he's saved, he's healed. The last time we saw someone leap for joy was that guy. And now our response to persecution is supposed to be just like somebody who can walk for the first time. That's a pretty uh, amazing teaching for Jesus to give. But it makes sense. If you really love him, it makes sense. Instead of fleeing from pain and persecution, the apostles rejoiced at the experience. Why? Because as Acts 5.41 makes clear, they had been counted as worthy to suffer. And isn't that a funny little phrase? Worthy to suffer. 
It's completely foreign. That phrase, worthy to suffer, is completely foreign to us privileged Westerners living our lives of selfish comfort and individualistic consumption. It's just not a phrase that our society says. Worthy to suffer. That's why the disciples rejoice. They had seen and heard the Lord's suffering. Jesus' suffering. And in suffering like him, they are displaying kinship with him. They are walking in the steps of their rabbi, which for any disciple, that's exactly what their purpose was, to walk in the steps of their rabbi, even to the cross. And Jesus said, unless you go to the cross with me, you're not my follower. So to them, the fact that they're going not to cross, but to whippings and floggings and beatings and standing trial before the most powerful people of their day, the fact that they get to endure that means they are doing exactly as their master did. They are true disciples. Right? Jesus said, unless you endure this, you're not with me. Well, they wanted nothing more than to be with Jesus. And the fact that they're doing what he did and coming out faithful means that they are disciples. True disciples. No wonder they rejoiced. They are unified with him. It's not that they seek suffering for suffering's sake. That's ludicrous. There are offsets of Christianity that, that do this. They seek actively seek pain. They will flagellate themselves in the hopes that they'll have some euphoric experience. I, I'm pretty confident that that's not what Jesus is saying to do here. We're not called to suffer for, for suffering's sake. Rather, they endured suffering for discipline's sake. Like a runner, enduring cramps and dehydration and burning lungs in the pursuit of becoming stronger and better faster discipline each time they were tested they got stronger because they identified more and more with their savior their trust in him increased their appreciation of his sacrifice was magnified their disgrace in the eyes of the world meant honor in the kingdom of their savior now make no mistake death is our enemy death and disease and pain and toil and loneliness, and abuse, and depression. Those are all servants of death, and death is our enemy. But, of course, thanks to the resurrection and the ascension, death is a conquered enemy. It's not an enemy that holds power over us any longer. Remember the words of 1 Corinthians, O death, where is thy sting? O suffering, you scourging whip, where is thy victory? There is no victory for suffering if we share the name of Jesus Christ. There is no sting in death. Rather, there's reason to rejoice. Suffering and death have been defeated. But that doesn't mean suffering and death don't have a purpose. See, suffering and death leave their marks all over Acts 5. We've been in Acts 5 for about a month now. And suffering and death and pain is all over the place in Acts 5. Death is a judgment and a cleanser of sin in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Death had to happen to, to get to cleanse the church from going down the path of, of dishonest discipleship. The physically and socially crippling realities of disease and demon possession. What greater markers of, of fallen humanity are there than disease and demon possession? But they become an opportunity for God to be glorified through the healing power of the Holy Spirit-filled apostles. So much so that people gather just to, to be in the shadow of Peter. That they are healed just by his shadow. And so disease and death and, 
and demon possession become opportunities for God to be glorified. And now, unjust persecution, another form of of pain and suffering, is an opportunity to A, proclaim truth to the ignorant, and B, pass the test of loyalty to the name of Jesus. Therefore, just in chapter 5 alone, pain is each of the following. It's a strict teacher. It's a purifying fire. It's a blinding neon sign flashing the words, God is compassionate. God is gracious. God can save you. Pain is a, a stamp of approval. It's a megaphone for truth. It's an exam to be passed with the reminder that the one conducting the exam, our teacher, is standing at our side giving the answers as we're being tested. So he tests us, and then he stands right beside us during that test and helps us out. Pain is all of these things. But more than any of it, the reason it becomes an opportunity for joy is because pain is an invitation. An invitation to become more like our suffering servant Messiah. An invitation to cry now, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who weep, for they will have cause to laugh. They will be the ones laughing in the kingdom of heaven. It's an invitation to cry now so that we can be blessed with joy in his kingdom. It's an invitation to multiply our faithfulness. It's an invitation to discover the holiness that accompanies disgrace, the growth that accompanies struggle, and the glory that accompanies suffering. Now, can I be honest with you for a moment? I believe all of this. I believe all of everything I've said today. I I believe it with my head, and I believe it with my heart. I believe that suffering has a holy purpose, and that trials are caused for rejoicing. But that doesn't make it any easier to preach this sermon on a week when our friend and sister in Christ gasps in agony as cancer tears her up inside. I saw Marcella. And so as I preach this stuff, it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't necessarily make it easier to sit with her family and hug them as strangers sharing in suffering and grief and pain. Knowing all of this and believing all of this and even experiencing this doesn't make it easier necessarily. And yet, I don't feel like a hypocrite at all in preaching Acts 5, 40 to 42. Death is awful. And we might as well admit it. it it's hard and it sucks and there's no roadmap, roadmap to, to, to navigating it. it. You will feel all kinds of things in the face of suffering. It won't always just be, hey, I'm suffering. Joy. Great. Of course not. Death is awful. Suffering, whether experienced or sometimes even harder than experiencing and witnessing it. Suffering is not easy. But with Christ as our rock and the Holy Spirit as our voice and our comfort, there is a light that pierces that darkness. You know, uh, the first time that Angie and I saw Marcella, it was like three weeks ago. It was just three weeks ago. Um, and when we saw her, she was very much at peace. And those of you who went to see her, I'm sure you got, she said, you know what, uh, it's kind of everywhere. And it doesn't look good, but I'm okay. She was very strong and very much at peace. And for me, who believes all of this stuff I've preached today, when I encounter that, even though I believe all that stuff, I still need that encouragement. I still need, I still took strength from her strength. Even though I believe all that, it was still a huge encouragement to me. Who knows all of this stuff that I know that 
suffering can lead to rejoicing. I know that. But I need to see it to believe it. And I saw it. She understood her situation. And I'm sure she wrestled with it. Of course she did. I'm sure she regrets it. But I found out from her son-in-law 30 years ago when, when he first met his wife, his first introduction to his future mother-in-law was in a hospital bed as she wrestled with cancer. 30 years ago. So she, 30 years of grace she got. And I'm sure she understood it like that because she was at peace. So I'm sure she wrestled it, but she was strong and she used it as an opportunity to make the goodness of God known to those she loved, especially those who don't know the source of her hope. And so even as death claims her, she is victorious over it. She succumbs to it. Vic- death wins, but death does not, is not victorious. It wins the battle, but she won the war. We all suffer because we're human, and that's the price of being human in a fallen world. We all suffer, and some suffering has nothing to do with, with God. He, he is not orchestrating it. He hates it. He sees us go through it, and he wants us to know that my own son endured this. He knows what we're going through. And so we all suffer, but not all suffering is the same kind of suffering. Not everyone is worthy to suffer for Jesus. And not everyone is blessed enough to suffer with Jesus. And that's the real tragedy, I think. The real tragedy isn't that death and pain are running amok in our fallen world. The real tragedy is that so few are able to find a reason to rejoice in the midst of that pain and suffering. So few people know that there is grace and strength and hope. That there is glory even attached to that suffering. Because of the creator that's living inside of us. And so unsurprisingly, despite two stern warnings, several imprisonments, and severe beatings, the apostles refused to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. He was their one true hope. Knowing they were worthy to suffer for him, they trusted him and glorified him. Worthy to suffer for him. When they endured this, they didn't come out of it shaking their fists at Jesus. Say, hey, we gave up everything for you and now we have to go through this? It'd be pretty easy for me to succumb to that attitude. But they didn't. They came out of it knowing that they had been proven worthy to suffer. That they were true disciples. And they came out of it trusting him and glorifying him. And once again, the wisdom of Gamaliel was answered in the positive. God was with these followers of Jesus. Even in the severe pain of a sound flogging. Rather than reducing their impact for the kingdom, their suffering for Jesus' name increased and multiplied their urgency. It exponentially grew their desire to make him known to all those around them. As they suffered, they wanted to relieve those who would suffer without Jesus. What an amazing attitude. What a beautiful inspiration for us comfy Christians. Suffering for Jesus isn't evidence that we're falling out of favor with him. Despite what society will tell you. They will tell you, look, where was God when this happened? This God that you claim to follow. Where is he as you suffer? Or It's totally backwards. And I, I hope we as believers can see that. It's totally backwards. Suffering for Jesus isn't evidence that we're falling out of favor with him. Suffering for Jesus is evidence of his belief in us. 
Suffering shows us to be worthy. To be called worthy to suffer for his name, to be completely dishonored in the eyes of the world, means that we will receive the greatest honor there is in the kingdom, to be called a true and faithful disciple. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words to read and to preach and to believe, but help us to believe them. Help us to know that in our pain and in our suffering and in our loneliness, uh, that you are there and that we have reason to rejoice. Father, I pray that you would make us worthy to suffer for your name, that we would encounter um, injustice and oppression with an attitude of knowing that you are empowering us and that you are making us stronger. Every time we hurt, Father, you will heal us. But help us to know that in that hurt, you're also teaching and strengthening and rewarding us. Help us to have peace and hope and joy, even in the midst of real suffering. We pray for those we know who are suffering. We pray that uh, they would know this peace and hope and joy in you. And we pray all these things in your powerful name. The name that we give everything up for. Amen. I'm sure, I'm sure that um, if I opened it up to you, that you would have all kinds of excellent thoughts on this. Stories that you know of people who are hurting and enduring and suffering. Um, and that would be a great encouragement. Honestly, it was hard to preach that, seeing Marcella like that. But it also makes me believe it so much more. So I hope, I hope there's comfort in, in those words. It's just a short little passage. But the idea that they consider themselves, they rejoice because they were worthy to suffer, is totally foreign to our society. And it is the greatest hope that we have. That in our suffering, we're counted worthy and we're called true disciples. So, have a great week. I hope you don't suffer too much. But if you do, 